Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Emma, for, um, for welcoming people. I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's workshop. And today's workshop is a partnership between the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and Cancer Care. And we're delighted for that partnership, and the program is titled Bladder Cancer Treatment Updates. Today's activity is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb and EMD Serrano, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program. Now, we have many participants on the call today. We have 224 participants on the call today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from Canada, Israel, Puerto Rico, and the United Kingdom. So it's a global call as well. And um, we are delighted that you've all chosen to spend this next hour with us. And now it is my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Gary Steinberg. Dr. Steinberg is Professor and Director, Perlmutter Cancer Center, an NCI-designated Comprehensive Cancer Center, Goldstein Bladder Cancer Program, NYU Langone Health. And Dr. Steinberg will be addressing standard of care in the context of COVID, Omicron, and seasonal flu, new treatment approaches, update on clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options, communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Steinberg. Perfect, perfect. So, you know, I am the internal optimist, and I'm hoping that uh, we are back to normal in terms of COVID. Uh, I think that, that uh, as we know, bladder cancer, uh, especially non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, requires a fair number of trips uh, to the urologist. Uh, and, I, and there's no question that some of the newer therapies that we're looking at, intravescular therapies, we're hoping to decrease the intensity of the treatments as well as potentially um, uh, uh, alter our cystoscopy uh, schedule. But, you know, in a perfect world, we would have urinary biomarkers so that we can uh, assess how well our intravescular therapies are doing, how well we're doing from our bladder cancers, as we know the concern with non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is recurrences as well as progression, uh, and that we would like to know as soon as possible if there is any evidence of cancer recurring. Uh, there have been a number of urinary tests throughout. Uh, we, we still rely mainly on urinary cytology. There's uh, unfortunately no great new urinary test available, although one that I am working with, and it's a company called Nanogen, and the urinary test is called Oncuria. I believe it is now commercially available, although there's still additional validation studies being uh, performed, but it's essentially a urine test that looks at 10 different proteins that we, I think, are enriched in patients with bladder cancer. Uh, there were a lot of patients during the pandemic that were uh, having their urine tested by something called CX Bladder, and that is a, a company that, that looks at urine, looks at various RNA changes in the urine, the five different markers, uh, and that uh, uh, it was at a very good uh, 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 true negative rate, so that if the test came back negative, it was highly unlikely that you had bladder cancer. In terms of its ability to predict if the cancer came back, uh, it's, a, it, it's not as good as the true negatives. Uh, they're, they're uh, certainly is kind of a, a gradation that you've got to look at a scale to see uh, if, uh, if the test shows that the likelihood of the bladder cancer is back, and then you would have a cystoscopy at that time. There's no question that COVID is still here. There's no question that now that everyone is out and about, we are seeing more uh, uh, influenza and respiratory viruses that we normally see uh, in, in the winter in, in the United States. But I think overall, uh, uh, we're hopeful that, that that people are back uh, to uh, normal. Uh, we do know that there are a number of trials uh, ongoing 
My goal has always been to replace BCG, although uh, uh, BCG is probably here to stay despite the fact that we have a large shortage in the United States. In Canada, uh, they uh, were given the, uh, the approval to start importing a Russian strain of BCG. This is made by the Cancer Institute of uh, Cancer, excuse me, the Vaccine Institute of India, and uh, uh, they're using a lot of the Russian strain BCG in Canada. Uh, the FDA still wants to make sure that the uh, BCGs that we're using are safe and effective. Uh, the trial looking at Tokyo strain versus Thai strain. Thai strain is the only strain FDA approved in the United States. Uh, the uh, uh, Tokyo strain trial uh, has been closed to accrual. We're still waiting to see the data. Uh, uh, Merck uh, is making uh, or building a new plant, but I believe it's not going to be online until 2026 or 2027. Having said that, uh, I am involved in a large number of clinical trials uh, that potentially will help replace BCG. Uh, we're looking at trials with uh, uh, cytokines such as uh, uh, NGene uh, has a, a, a trial looking at EG70, which has a number of uh, cytokines. These are, are, are uh, things in the, uh, uh, that, that enhance the immune system, the innate and the adaptive immune system. Uh, we're looking at it in BCG unresponsive and having some nice results, although early on. But hopefully that would be something that could replace BCG. We also have new, uh, the Edstilidrin vaccine, which was FDA approved. Uh, uh, there's a CG0070, which is another uh, oncolytic vaccine made by a different company that's uh, working its way through trials. We've got the Taris uh, Janssen pretzel, where we put drugs into a tube that we put in place into a patient's bladder, delivering chemotherapy uh, slowly into the bladder. There is Immunity Bio, which has another uh, type of cytokine called IL-15. Unfortunately, it needs to be used in conjunction with BCG. We're waiting for uh, to see if that will be approved by the FDA. There is the erdafitinib, which is a targeted uh, intra uh, targeted therapy for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Right now, it's an oral agent. Uh, it's what we call an FGFR3 inhibitor with a fair amount of uh, side effects. But we're looking to potentially put that in the pretzel, the Janssen pretzel, so that we can dilute, uh, diminish. Uh, the side effects uh, of, uh, of the treatment. <clears throat> Overall, I think that we've got tremendous energy in the uh, bladder cancer and pharmacologic community looking at new treatments for non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, the responses that we're seeing are quite good. What we're waiting for is to see how durable these responses are and how long will the patient be uh, continue to be cancer-free. And we're trying to push results or, or these drugs to uh, be effective beyond 12 and 20, even 24 months. Um, uh, John Gore and Andrew Smith are really doing a great job, and they've got this project looking at uh, the quality of life and patients' uh, involvement in, in healthcare decision-making. It's a study by a governmental agent uh, called PCORA, and it's the CISTO trial, and they're looking at assessing a patient's quality of life when receiving intravescal treatments or other treatments for patients with high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer that, that has not responded necessarily to BCG versus uh, going on and proceeding to have radical cystectomy. So we're trying to find how patients are feeling about their treatment options uh, as well as their treatment decisions, uh, whether they go on to removal of the bladder or continue on uh, uh, various treatments to see if we can preserve the bladder but eliminate the bladder cancer. They uh, really have done a great job, and the uh, number of patients enrolled on the trial, I believe, was uh, close to 400. So they're really doing great. We're waiting to hear the results. But there's no question that uh, at the last think tank meeting, uh, uh, the message came uh, through very, very loud and clear that patients want uh, something other than medication uh, put inside the bladder through the urethra, as well as uh, something better than or more easy to tolerate than cystoscopy. You know, for a urologist, the cystoscope is akin to the stethoscope for a cardiologist. And, um, you know, so urologists naturally think that it's not a big deal 
But I've heard very loud and clear that uh, patients uh, prefer not to be instrumented. And so that will be a new uh, area for us to find oral treatments as well as better imaging of the bladder so that we could potentially decrease the number of cystos. And again, with better tumor markers, whether it's in the urine or blood, to also uh, so we can decrease the amount of invasive procedures that we uh, routinely uh, recommend now. Excellent. Thank you so much. That was a really um, wonderful um, introduction to this program, um, covering a lot of very important topics. I know we'll have more questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. Excellent. And our next speaker is Dr. Walter Stadler. Dr. Stadler is Fred C. Buffett Professor of Medicine, Dean for Clinical Research, Senior Advisor to the Director of Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Chicago. And Dr. Stadler will be addressing the role of diagnostic technologies, biomarkers, and precision medicine, targeted treatments, predicting response to treatment, the emerging role of immunotherapy, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up care, and discussion of open notes. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Stadler. Uh, thank you very much, um, <clears throat> and it's a pleasure to um, join you here uh, today. Um, you know, in a brief uh, discussion here and presentation, it's hard to, um, you know, go through everything that a, um, what I will call, advanced bladder cancer patient may need to know or go through um, as they meet people like me and medical oncologists <clears throat> that typically use a variety of different drugs. Um, uh, to treat cancer, and when I say variety of different drugs, I, I mean drugs that we either <clears throat> give by mouth or, you know, sometimes by, by vein. Um, I think that, um, you know, most importantly um, in, uh, for many of our patients is to try to understand the extent of their disease and to try to understand a little bit more about um, the characteristics of their disease. And when we talk about extent of disease, we, that really um, boils down to um, CAT scans, um, for the most part, is what we use uh, to uh, look how far the disease has spread and where it might be located. Um, sometimes we use um, MRIs, which may have certain advantages for things like uh, the liver and may have certain advantages in patients whose, kidney, um, are, whose kidneys are not functioning quite as well. Um, but um, maybe a little bit more um, challenging for patients because MRIs are at least um, claustrophobic for certain patients and more difficult to go through. Um, <clears throat> occasionally, we will use things like um, what we call FDG PET scans um, to get um, some better pictures of uh, what's going on. That is typically not necessary in bladder cancer, but can occasionally be um, useful. Um, in regards to um, thinking about the characteristics of your cancer, I think it's becoming increasingly important to understand what the molecular characteristics of the cancer might be. And this uh, generally requires things like um, next-gen sequencing, where um, the tumor specimen is subjected to um, modern molecular testing that um, can tell us whether the tumor is um, potentially sensitive to um, certain therapies. And there are two types of tests here. One is a test to look at whether the tumor expresses PD-1 or PDL one and that can help us um, understand what the likelihood is that the um, cancer may respond to certain um, immunotherapies. And the second is um, some of this, what I call next-gen sequencing, in which um, we obtain um, sequencing that will allow us to sort of understand whether um, the tumor is sensitive to things like what Dr. Steinberg mentioned is this ertafitinib, which is a drug that targets specific molecular abnormalities. And really that, um, that kind of data <clears throat> is what helps us um, uh, choose the best therapy for the patient at the um, you know, time that they may see us. And 
you know, sometimes we talk about these things as, quote, targeted therapies. Um, I like to think about this a little bit more as choosing amongst a number of different types of drugs that we can use from um, our, you know, sort of menu of uh, drugs that are effective um, in this disease. Um, I think that many patients are, you know, particularly interested in um, immunotherapy. I think that there are um, certainly a lot of exciting aspects of immunotherapy uh, in so much as it may be <clears throat> a little bit less toxic, at least uh, immediately, um, but it can have its own set of toxicities and choosing, you know, when to use immunotherapy and in which patients it might be best to use um, is often an individual little bit more um, nuanced discussion. Sometimes within the role of immunotherapy, we um, are including a group of um, drugs that we call antibody drug conjugates. Um, this is probably less an immunotherapy per se than a treatment um, that whose concept is many decades old, but it is using engineered antibodies to, uh, to deliver um, certain drugs directly to the cancer and hopefully avoid other tissues. And um, there's at least two drugs like that that are currently available, one being infortimab and the other being sacituzumab. And these are becoming increasingly important agents for treatment of, uh, of bladder cancer. <clears throat> one thing I think that we've all noticed is the increasing use of technology when it comes to um, interacting or interactions between patients and their physicians. And um, n these telehealth and telemedicine uh, appointments, I think, are, are highly valuable, especially when um, patients have to travel some distance or if there are um, relatively focused conversations such as, you know, monitoring for particular side effects of a treatment and so forth. Um, and we use these regularly. Um, however, I think it's critically important to know that in-person visits still play an important role, and there are things that, um, you know, are difficult to transmit via video, and so certainly I encourage patients to, um, you know, continue to have in-person visits, at least for some of their visits, and typically every second or third visits for patients that I'm, you know, have ongoing monitoring. Um, I think one of the challenges that some patients have is, um, you know, the, the technology itself in terms of creating these um, visits. I think that's slowly getting better so that the technology um, is applicable to anyone that might have a uh, cell phone, and most patients do have a cell phone. Um, but I do encourage patients that they practice a little bit perhaps with the uh, technology if possible, even before the visit, so that not half the visit is spent, you know, trying to figure out how to, you know, do the connection, or at the very least, um, make the efforts to connect, you know, far in, uh, enough in advance of the appointment, so that, as I said, you don't utilize a significant comp uh, portion of the appointment just figuring out how to um, use the technology. As always, I think, um, you know, patients, uh, it's best to be prepared with your questions. And I think that, um, you know, having things written down always helps. It certainly helps me that, you know, if, if I walk into a conversation with, with notes, then I tend not to forget what I wanted to ask. And finally, when it comes to technology, one of the things that's happened, if you're not uh, fully aware of it yet, is that, we as physicians, for the most part, are required to share the notes that we write in your medical record um, with the patients. And, and, and for the most part, I think that that's a good thing. You know, I do believe that patients should have access to our notes and have access to what we're thinking, have access to what we as the physicians are writing. I do think, however, that, 
you know, sometimes we use words and language that um, may be difficult to understand, maybe a little bit um, more nuanced. Um, and while I encourage patients, you know, to look at the notes, um, I think it's even more important um, to make sure that when you look at the notes that what you read is consistent with what you understood when you spoke to the physician. Um, and if it doesn't add up or if there seems to be some disconnect there, um, be prepared that next time to ask the questions. Make that as part of your notes that you're going to ask the, the doctor the next time you um, uh, speak to her or him. So I think I'll end there and let um, others um, comment. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Stadler. That was really an excellent stellar presentation, very clear, and actually um, lots of wonderful information. I know our, our participants will be asking you questions during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bearden, and Ms. Bearden is an oncology dietitian, Michael E. DeBakey, VA Medical Center, and she will be addressing nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Bearden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation. So nutrition and hydration are essential, not only in the quality of life that you have, but also in your tolerance to treatment by providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy. Your diet might be modified during or even maybe after cancer treatment to assist with managing any side effects that you might experience. Now, every person's journey through their cancer treatment is unique. And so, um, in general, some of the potential side effects you could experience are things such as mouth sores, diarrhea, constipation, maybe changes in taste or smell, nausea, vomiting, or maybe even a decrease in appetite um, or um, experiencing fatigue. So during your course of treatment, um, your dietitian is actually part of your healthcare team. So work to try and to connect with that dietitian. Um, the dietitian serves as a support for you to ensure and guide you in helping you meet your nutritional goals. Your nutritional goals can change during treatment, and each person is unique in what those goals are. So um, taking that opportunity can really help um, identify what you need um, through your treatment. So one of the things we focus on um, during treatment is weight maintenance. And that's because um, when you lose weight unintentionally during treatment, oftentimes it's your muscle mass that we see um, that is lost. And muscle mass is very important in um, us having um, endurance to do the things that we enjoy. It helps with our balance, um, our ability to do our daily activities. And so um, understanding what you need is, is part of your treatment. And so um, reaching out to your dietitian is, is essential. Now, sometimes I get patients that tell me, oh, I'm overweight, I have weight to lose, it's not a problem. But actually, you can become malnourished even if you're overweight. And so um, I just want patients to realize that sometimes there's a misunderstanding um, related to that component. And um, nutrition is essential um, during your treatment, irregardless um, of what your weight status is. And, and so I want you to understand that your dietitian can help you with that. So. Oftentimes, there's medications that the doctor gives you. So side effects can come up, um, but understanding how to take those medications is important. So make sure that you have somebody with you or that you have a good understanding of when to take your medications if you're experiencing a side effect. Always let your healthcare team know sooner rather than later if a side effect is, um, arises or if you're experiencing a new challenge. Um, if you're working with a dietitian or if you notice issues around eating, take note of that so you can share that with your healthcare team. Um, they can help you better if they have as much information um, as possible to understand what you're going through. Now, hydration sometimes is left off the list, but dehydration is actually very serious. It can increase some of the side effects that you experience, such as nausea and fatigue. You might even feel dizzy or have headaches. So a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 and 8-ounce glasses of fluid a day. A fluid is anything that's liquid at room temperature, such as water, milk, a sports drink. Um, but each person, again, is unique, so talking with your healthcare team um, is going to really help you understand what you need. So in closing, there are several members of your healthcare team. Knowing your healthcare team is dedicated to you during this time, so reach out to them if you run into any challenges or concerns. 
I'm going to close with that and hand the line back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was an outstanding presentation and lots of great information about nutrition and hydration. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Stephanie Chisholm, and Dr. Chisholm is Director of Education and Advocacy, Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, BCAN, and she'll be address, addressing the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network, uh, Network's uh, free services and programs, or BCAN's free programs and services. And she'll also be giving you information about their support line, their website, and how to get in touch with them. So it's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chisholm. Thank you, Carolyn. I always appreciate the opportunity to work with cancer care on these programs because they reach so many people. I'd love to let everybody know that the bcan.org beacon.org website is open 24 hours a day. And when you have that, oh my goodness moment, I'm afraid I don't know what to do and I don't know where to turn, we hope that you would go to our website and find the answers that you need rather than just looking for general Dr. Google because that's kind of a scary place. So I'm really delighted to let people know that there are webinars printed uh, audio materials in the form of podcasts and previously recorded webinar programs as well as upcoming webinar programs. We have a survivor to survivor program which matches you if you're interested with a volunteer who's already gone through the treatment that you might be facing. So you can speak to somebody that actually knows what it's like to live through that experience. And we're also really delighted to say that we launched a partnership with Cancer Care to provide social work available during the regular business hours, Monday through Friday, East Coast time. And people can call 833-ASK for BCA. That's 833-ASK-4-BCA. And you can speak to one of Cancer Care social workers who've been really trained about the Beacon resources and how to help you find resources in your own state that might help with survivorship issues, financial toxicity, any of the many questions that you might have that our volunteers can answer. So we hope that you'll consider calling them and getting additional information. Thanks so much, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chisholm. Wonderful presentation and wonderful resources. Some of you may be quite familiar with Beacon, but if you're not, I definitely recommend that you contact them and work with them. And I also, um, I do want to let everyone know that at the end of the program today, in a couple of days, you'll be getting a survey monkey evaluation, which is an evaluation of the program, which we always appreciate you're filling out. But in addition, any of the websites or phone numbers or anything that we give out during the program will be included. So you'll get um, and there may be some additional resources we'll provide as well. So it's not just an evaluation. It's also you'll be getting some more information from us as well that hopefully will be useful to you. And I'm just going to say a few words about cancer care services, um, and then we're going to move into um, our, our, um, our Q&A soon. Um, so I'm Carolyn Mester. I'm Senior Director of Education and Training with Cancer Care. And I want to talk about Cancer Care's free programs and services. So many of you may ask, well, what are those services? So many people call our HOPE line, 800-813-4673, and speak with one of our oncology social workers. Um, there is a wait time when you call. There's a social worker on cue that each person is assigned to a different time. We have over 40 social workers so that there's always someone to answer the phone and speak to you. And usually a person, when they call, have a particular question or concern, and we address that, and then we do provide all the other services. So we do offer support, online support groups. We also offer telephone support groups. Um, we also have publications. We have a pet assistance program. For those of you who may have a pet, and actually that pet may, um, you may not be able to, you may not feel uh, well enough to take your dog for a walk or change the litter box. Um, or you may um, need some help with the cost of food for your pet as well. So we do help with, with that, those issues as well. Um, and again, we do have these education workshops, which you offer quite a few per year. Um, last year, about 80 of them, and probably this year as many. 
um, on different topics, different types of cancers, and so um, those are some of the resources from Cancer Care. And now um, we're going to move on to the Q&A, and I'm going to ask Emma to explain to you how to queue up for questions, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, at this time, we will take questions from the web only. You may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Okay, we have a bunch of questions coming in, so let me just... Uh, this is a question for, for Dr. Sadler. If my bladder needs to be removed, what are the, my options for passing urine? What are the pros and cons of each? This sounds like something for Dr. Steinberg. Dr. Steinberg, can you handle this question? If my bladder needs to be yes. moved, what are the, my options for passing urine? What are the pros and cons of each? Yes. Uh, so the uh, Beacon website has got a wonderful uh, 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 section on this. And what they also have is they have video clips of eight real live bladder cancer patients, not actors or actresses, that have had their bladder removed and, and discuss uh, uh, their urinary uh, diversions. Essentially, there are three types. One is incontinent, meaning that you have a stoma and an ileal conduit, and that drains your urine 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of your life. Now, initially, that may sound scary, but actually it works very, very well. Um, uh, it helps protect the kidneys. It helps protect you against infection. Um, um, but, you know, certainly it may um, uh, be a body image alteration that, that many patients may find uh, unpalatable. So we then go into what we call continent urinary diversions, where patients have control over their urination. And the most common type is something we call a neobladder. That's where we take some intestine and we create a new bladder and put it where your old bladder was, and that patients then void per urethra. Now, that sounds uh, great and easy, but there are some nuances in terms of learning how to empty your neobladder completely, uh, uh, maintaining urinary control daytime as well as nighttime. Nighttime control can be more problematic, especially uh, uh, as we get older and we're taking multiple medications, uh, diuretics, diabetes medications, and so forth. <laughs> and then last and probably least uh, utilized uh, is something we call an continent catheterizable uh, urinary diversion. This is something where we create a pouch inside of your abdomen uh, made out of intestine, and the way you empty yourself is by catheterizing. There's a, there'll be a portion, a small little piece of intestine that will come to your skin. Uh, you cover it with a Band-Aid. You don't wear a bag. It doesn't drain urine, and, but, but you have to catheterize uh, that uh, uh, pouch to eliminate your urine, uh, catheter, like the types of catheters we use for uh, uh, putting in a uh, intravascular therapy or after a bladder biopsy. Uh, uh, there are, should, it should be relatively painless because it's at the abdominal wall. The intestine does not have a sensory uh, uh, innervation. But just like every American adult usually urinates every three to four hours, you also need to catheterize the uh, continent catheterizable diversion probably every three to four hours. You may need to wake up once at night to catheterize, but it does work very, very well. Unfortunately, uh, it's utilized very rarely in women who are probably the best candidates for a, a, a content catheterizable urinary diversion, uh, and that overall, uh, uh, even major cancer centers don't perform the operation very often. I've uh, performed close to 2,500 radical cystectomies in my career, and uh, uh, about 40% of the patients, I create a new bladder so that they can void per urethra. Um, uh, about 10%, the, what we call the Indiana pouch, that's where you catheterize yourself, and then a good 50-plus percent uh, uh, will get an ileal conduit based on your body uh, size, uh, your activity level, your age, your other medical comorbidities, uh, the, the ileal chondrite or the stoma is our kind of fail-safe, uh, and that it does work very, very well. Awesome. Thank you. A question um, for Dr. Stadler um, regarding just liquid biopsies, if you could comment on that. 
Yeah, so um, liquid biopsies are becoming um, increasingly um, viable, I would say, and there are, you know, essentially two um, aspects of liquid biopsies that one has to be aware of. The first is in patients with more advanced disease where we're trying to understand some of the molecular uh, makeup of the cancer itself and the um, molecular um, phenotype, so to speak, and that's where I talked about selecting therapy. And rather than getting a biopsy of a tumor, which is with a needle, and do, sending that for analysis, we're increasingly able to get that information from a simple blood test, uh, which is obviously much easier. <clears throat> the other um, aspect of, of liquid biopsy, probably a little bit more um, behind technologically and not quite ready for prime time, but there are some uh, tests that are being developed for um, detecting recurrence um, following a definitive surgery or radiation for cancer, and so to detect the cancer coming back, so to speak, using a blood test. And I, <clears throat> I think that's something that's emerging, but not quite ready for prime time. And then also could you comment, um, Dr. Stadler, on antibody conjugate? Um, yeah, the antibody conjugates I mentioned uh, briefly in my discussion as a, quote, type of immune therapy, and, and really it's, uh, it's they're, they sometimes labeled as immune therapies because they are engineered to antibodies, which are part of our immune system, but in reality it's um, more a way of delivering drugs to the cancer where the antibody essentially can take a drug and direct it to the cancer, regardless of where the um, cancer may be. Two of those drugs that are available, one is infortimab, the other is sacituzumab, and um, we have others that are in development. Thank you. Uh, this question for Dr. Steinberg, um, why well, was diagnosed with bladder cancer and I'm five months pregnant? I'm worried that the cancer is going to affect my unborn baby, and I'm wondering if you could speak to this. What are the best treatment options for me? Yeah, so it, it certainly depends on the grade and stage of the bladder cancer. In general, in general, young uh, men and women in their 30s and 40s that get bladder cancer, uh, uh, which is not common, 90% uh, of all patients who are diagnosed with bladder cancer are 60 years old or older. But we do see a group of patients, young men and women in their 30s and 40s, that get bladder cancer. Most commonly, the, for the vast majority, they are non-invasive, low-grade papillary tumors. And what we have to remember is while we hear the word cancer, we're pregnant, it certainly is incredibly uh, uh, distressful, low-grade non-invasive bladder cancers grow very, very slowly. They uh, are, in, are not life-threatening. Uh, uh, the life expectancy for patients with low-grade non-invasive bladder cancer is exactly the same as patients without bladder cancer. And I think that, that it can be very, very readily managed um, uh, once you deliver a, a healthy baby, and, and it should not um, uh, cause any problems. Now, if we do all kinds of surgical interventions, uh, x-rays and all these other tests, uh, which, which uh, especially in the low-grade non-invasive setting, are not uh, critical and, and certainly can be delayed, uh, 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 that can cause problems. So if it is truly a low-grade non-invasive, I would rest assured, have your baby, and then um, uh, uh, two to three months afterward, it can uh, be investigated again. Uh, many times these low-grade tumors can be eliminated completely in, in, in surgery. Uh, sometimes if they're small, they can even be cauterized uh, as an outpatient in clinic. So I, I would uh, 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 not be concerned. Now, if, on the other hand, it is a high-grade invasive bladder cancer. Well, that's a much, much different disease, and, and, uh, uh, and then we have to work with your obstetrician to make sure that we guide our therapy to be uh, as less as unobtrusive as possible, but without, but making sure that we take care of the cancer. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. I hope that's helpful. Um, 
and very helpfully answered um, uh, to our participant. And please do discuss this with your healthcare team as well. Um, and um, and uh, Dr. Steinberg, can you speak to any experience you have had with patients in clinical trials for bladder cancer and the pros and cons of being enrolled in a cl clinical trial versus more common treatment options? Yes. You know, I, I think that clinical trials are the crux of cancer care uh, and, and, and uh, tertiary cancer care and optimum cancer care. Now, having said that, I think that the, the investigators today and, and certainly the FDA and the pharmaceutical industry, which is very actively involved in bladder cancer, to find new treatments, um, uh, we're, we're hard working, we're working hard to make sure that the trials have equipoise. That means that that we're not going to randomize a patient to no treatment if, if they, you know, if the standard of care is treatment. Uh, we, we have to make sure that the patients get good quality of care and then at the same time that we could study and compare newer agents. One of the difficulties is that patients, they, they want to be in a clinical trial, but they only want to get the new treatment. They don't necessarily want to get the standard of care. Uh, they certainly don't want to get a placebo. Uh, and so it really is critically important that, that we design the trials and that patients enroll in trials that have a potential benefit for the individual, but most importantly for society uh, uh, and the bladder cancer community as a whole. And, and, and at some level, you, you have to be a little um, uh, uh, altruistic to, to enroll in trials, however, we're never going to find the answers until we, we can treat patients on clinical trials. There are many, many, many cancers that we can completely cure in mice and rats that we can't cure in humans. And so we need to you know, do good science, find out these agents, looking at, at animal models, tissue culture, and so forth. But ultimately, we need to see how they work in humans. And uh, um, uh, we would be we would move a lot quicker and the field would advance a lot faster if we could enroll uh, many many more patients in clinical trials. Having said that, in my lifetime, we've had a sea change in our ability to get patients on uh, clinical trials for advanced disease. Dr. Stather will attest to that. I'm sure that uh, a lot of clinical trials uh, earlier on in my career would close to poor accrual. And now we're doing clinical trials in advanced bladder cancer with 700 patients, 1,000 patients, and we're really making some major progress. Excellent, thank you. And Dr. Stadler's question, I'm a 55-year-old female who was recently diagnosed with small cell bladder cancer. Throughout my life, I've always struggled with recurring UTIs and pelvic floor dysfunction. I'm curious if these could have either caused my diagnosis or made me more vulnerable to this type of diagnosis. If you could just answer this in a general way, it's an individual question. So, you know, obviously it's difficult to um, answer that for any specific um, patient. Um, we do know that patients with um, chronic bladder infections are at a higher risk for um, developing bladder um, uh, cancer. Um, Typically, those bladder cancers are uh, more squamous cell cancers than um, small cell cancers, um, so it's hard to know whether, you know, this particular cancer is directly related to any prior infections. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. But, 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 but it is a very rare cancer, and, and because of its rarity, uh, it's hard to identify uh, causative factors, but but I would have to say that it's uh, uh, there's no real obvious causative factor to uh, small cell bladder cancer. Um, and then um, this question from um, one of our participants, um, I believe, is for Dr. Stadler. What are the two? What are the names of the two medications that were mentioned? I'm not sure which medications were um, the question, but in terms of antibody drug conjugates, I mentioned enfortimab, E-N-F-O-R-T-A-M-A-B, and sacituzumab, S-A-C-I-T-U-Z-I-M-A-B. 
Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. The, 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 more, the more common name that patients may uh, recognize for the important of is PADSEV. Uh, and I, I don't know what the trade name is for Sassituzumab probotecan, but but a lot of patients are, are becoming aware of the term PAD7, and that is the, the trade name for infortunate vidotin. The other drug that? that we talked about, PAD7, P-A-D, P-A-D-C-E-V, mm-hmm. and then the other drug we talked about was erdafitinib. And uh, what's the well, what's the trade name for erdafitinib? Don't know. Forget. <laughs> I always yeah, use yeah, the yeah. generic name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you want to spell that for the audience as well? Uh, Erdafitin, but I think it's Balserva. B as in boy, A-L-S-E-R-V-A, as I recall, is the trade name for Erdafitin, which is a FGFR3 uh, inhibitor. It's uh, E-R-D-A-F-A-T. E-R-D-A-F-I-F-I-T-I-N-I-B, I think, something like that. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So this is an interesting question. Um, this would be for Dr. Steinberg, I guess. What percentage of patients choosing to preserve their bladder are successful and for how long before recurrence? Yeah, so it depends on... on um, you know, BC, you know, your BCG status. So is it a patient who's BCG naive? Is it a patient who's been BCG exposed or experienced and then has recurrence? Or is it somebody who's truly what we would call BCG unresponsive, somebody who's had BCG and their bladder cancer recurs despite that? I think that overall, when we have non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and we look at newer literature, the overall risk of recurrence is probably 30 to 40%, but the risk of, of, of progression going from non-invasive to invasive uh, is probably lower. It's probably somewhere between 15 to 20%. And we know that when we follow patients carefully and we use intravesical therapy in the non-muscle invasive bladder, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer patients, that many, many times we can preserve the bladder and probably of those 100% of patients with high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, even the ones that, that recur despite BCG, we still can preserve bladders in probably 70 to 80% of patients. So, we, we, you know, we, 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 we make a diagnosis. We start with the standard therapy. In patients who don't respond to BCG, we've got a number of clinical trials. I, I don't think that patients uh, uh, are, uh, face any undue harm by going into clinical trials for patients with bladder cancer that doesn't respond to BCG, at least to try a, a first round or two. Certainly, if, if uh, the BCG doesn't work and a newer therapy doesn't work, uh, patients are, are at higher risk for the, the bladder cancer to progress. Um, um, but again, I think that overall, if, if from all comers with high-grade non-Muslim invasive bladder cancer, I would say that probably uh, close to 80% of patients should be able to preserve their bladder with uh, modern um, uh, intravascular therapy and techniques as well as some clinical trials. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and last question, this will be for Dr. Stadler. What exactly is the difference between monotherapy and combination therapy for bladder cancer besides the obvious that more than one drug is being used in combination therapy? Is one type of therapy better than the other, or is it dependent on the type of bladder cancer I have? So, you know, the use of drugs for treatment of cancer, I think, is, you know, highly individualized and is dependent not only on the details of the cancer, but on the details of prior therapy and the details of, um, you know, the patient's other medical um, conditions. And so whether we use one drug or two drugs or more than two drugs um, is, you know, a very individual conversation with the, you know, treating physician to determine what might be best in, you know, that patient's uh, situation. But, but I think, Carolyn, to answer a little bit more fully, fully I, I, I think if the, if the questioner is implying combinations, for example, radiation and chemotherapy or uh, immunotherapy and chemotherapy, 
uh, or radiation, chemotherapy, and immunotherapy, all of these combinations are being studied uh, very extensively today. Um, uh, there is some evidence that combinations of chemotherapy and immunotherapy are beneficial in patients with lung cancer. Uh, that, that question is being looked at very carefully in bladder cancer as well. Uh, but I don't think we have the definitive answer. And more importantly, I don't think we have the biomarkers that would suggest that a patient off the bat would, would necessarily benefit from chemotherapy and immunotherapy right away or, or uh, uh, radiation and so forth. Excellent. Okay, thank you. Um, and I'm going to ask both um, Dr. Stadler and, um, and Dr. Steinberg to just provide a takeaway for our participants of today's program. Um, if, um, if Dr. Stadler, if you want to, to start just to give a takeaway of today's program. Yeah, I think, you know, my takeaway is in some ways similar to what Dr. Steinberg said earlier, which is that there is, has been um, a major advance or major advances in the treatment of, uh, of bladder cancer. And I think that uh, we can be very hopeful in terms of treating any one individual and that we continue to, you know, conduct clinical trials to um, even to further improve um, the treatment that we can provide. So I think that, um, you know, I'll echo what Gary said earlier that uh, I'm an optimist and I think that there's lot, not only are there lots of things that we have done already, there's more to come. Excellent. And Dr. Steinberg? Yeah, uh, it's never good to have bladder cancer, but if you're going to have it, now's the best time uh, that, uh, in history and that in the next five to ten years with uh, a partnership of industry, uh, our physicians, and our patients, and our patient advocates, we're going to uh, move the ball forward. And I really do think that um, um, uh, bladder cancer is going to become a much less dreadful disease in the future uh, because we're really using our, uh, uh, all of our resources and attacking it very aggressively. And in my lifetime, I've seen tremendous changes in uh, treatment of lung cancer and colon cancer uh, and melanoma. Uh, we're seeing tremendous changes in kidney cancer and bladder cancer is right up there with those diseases that were rapidly evolving new treatments uh, uh, for the benefit of everybody. Excellent. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. It's been an amazing call. And I want to thank our participants for also asking really such informed questions, really excellent questions um, so make made it more of a participatory aspect during the Q&A. Um, I also, um, in closing, just want to comment on the fact that we don't want anyone to leave this program feeling that you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of a community of support, and we're here to help you. And that community of support starts with your healthcare team. Um, also, of course, the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network and Cancer Care, and there are many other organizations um, out there that can provide you with help, and we will give you um, in the SurveyMonkey evaluation those additional organizations as well. Um, and also, probably most important um, before we end the call today, please um, check with your healthcare team about their availability on evenings, weekends, and holidays, because those seem to be the time when things crop up for people and always there's always issues that people have um, <laughs> at those times it seems on um, business hours you can usually access someone but the evenings weekends and holidays are often very challenging so please do um, check with your healthcare team on that and on that note I want to wish you all a very fine day and thank you all for your participation today ladies and gentlemen thank you for your participation this concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect Everyone have a great day.